Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. Happy Canada Day to all our friends north of the 49th, and we also want to send good July 4th wishes to our American cousins. Whichever side of the peace bridge you find yourself on, we wish you peace and joy throughout the coming year. Today marks a milestone episode for Dead to Rights. Our weekly listeners will know that every week since December 29th of 2017, we've brought you short story readings for our readers on the run, author and book industry interviews, insights and tips for writers, as well as reviews of books, movies, and other works of popular culture. Each week, we also touch briefly on the current news and events, adding our voice to the history we see unfolding around us. Today, we unfurl our maple leaf in honor of Canada's birthday. We also celebrate our 17th weekly episode, a full half year of fantastic book and book industry news, chats, and information. It's been our pleasure to produce this podcast for you to reach out to readers and authors in our community. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 26 episodes as we unwrap the balance of 2018. Coming up in July, we have a number of fantastic authors on the agenda. On July 8th, we'll be speaking with Iris Weichler, author of the self-help book, Role Reversal. Then, on July 15th, we'll bring you the very funny comic author, Perry Block, Nouveau, old, formerly cute. On July 22nd, we'll speak with Jane Barnard, author of The Falls Mysteries and the Maddie Hatter Adventures. And then, on July 29th, to wrap up the month, we're thrilled to talk books with Jen Knox, an exceptional literary author of The Glass City and After the Gazebo. I highly recommend her works. Today, appropriately for our Canada Day episode, we're featuring Canadian author George Mercer, a former Canadian Parks warden who is intimately familiar with the inner beauty of our country. George will talk to us about his Died in the Green mystery series, and if you happen to hear a bird song in the background in this podcast, I apologize if you consider it noise, but it's very, very hot in the North Country today, as many of you will know. We're suffering a major heat wave for Canada Day, and I've got to have the windows open. Today on our Readers on the Run segment, and in honor of this auspicious day, we'll feature an ode to freedom and independence for nations and for the individuals who comprise them. Our reading will be Spartacus the Kite by Alec Carrick. But before we get there, I've got a few news items to highlight our industry. First, I want to bring your attention to a brand new literary gem by well-known Canadian author Caro Souls, titled People Like Us. It will be on my review list in the near future. Also, by sci-fi thriller author Stephen M. Moore, check out his title Soldiers of God. Not only is it highly relevant today, but it also provides a fantastic segue between his earlier Clones and Mutants series and his more recent The Chaos Chronicles. I want to tell you about something Carrick Publishing has been working on throughout June. 
Three fantastic titles by Canadian crime writer Rosemary McCracken that make up the Pat Tierney mystery series are being re-released this week by Carrick Publishing. Safe Harbor, Blackwater, and Raven Lake are all soon to be available under the Carrick cover. If you're already familiar with McCracken's work, then get your hands on a copy of Book 3, Raven Lake. You won't be disappointed. If you don't yet know Rosemary's work, I recommend you read them all. Financial crime is the theme, and it's one we're all fascinated with these days. As you know from last week's episode, I'm currently reading the latest work of Mr. Stephen King, The Outsider. I'm not quite ready to review it, but by next week, I'll be ready to bring you my ideas on this fantastic book. For now, I can tell you it's well worth the price of purchase. What makes King's books so special? That's a question many authors would love to resolve, a mystery we would love to reveal. In our early days as writers, we seek the Holy Grail, the one true method that will grab our readers by the throat and force them to turn those pages. When I review The Outsider next week, I'll take a stab at the elements that make his work both accessible and addictive. For now, though, I refer our listeners to On Writing by Stephen King, said to be one of the best, most accessible resources for new writers to be had. Incidentally, I've added On Writing to my Audible library, and I'll give you my insights on it as well once it rolls up on my to-be-listened-to list. It was a tough week for society in general, and for journalists in particular. On Friday, June 29th, a 38-year-old Maryland suspect opened fire in the offices of the Capitol Gazette, killing four journalists and one staffer. I won't dignify this evil man with a mention of his name, but I would like to take a moment to honor the five killed and their families and surviving colleagues. The following comments are directly quoted from CNN and can be attributed to them. I repeat them here with full credit as a tribute to these fallen folks. Rob Hyassen walked into the newsroom of the Capital Gazette newspaper convinced that his community had the right to know the news. He had a unique way of telling stories and enjoyed mentoring young reporters. Gerald Fishman, 61, had been at the newspaper for more than 25 years. The editorial page editor was known to have a quiet and reserved personality, but his work and knowledge charmed many. John McNamara had worked at the Capitol Gazette in various capacities for more than 20 years. The 56-year-old loved covering sports, and his interest in local history inspired him to write two books about the University of Maryland's football and basketball history. Rebecca Smith, 34, joined the newspaper last year as a sales assistant. She was a very thoughtful person, Marty Padden, the newspaper's advertising director, told the Baltimore Sun. She was kind and considerate and willing to help when needed. Wendy Winters was an editor and community reporter for the Capitol Gazette, writing several weekly columns. The 65-year-old moved to Maryland after working for two public relations agencies in New York and owning her own boutique agency in the Big Apple, her staff bio said. Again, I must reiterate, full credit for these comments goes to CNN. I've merely repeated 
the comments here because it is the victims of these monsters and their families who deserve our respect and who merit a place in our collective memories. And now, in honor of Freedom and Independence for Canada Day and the U.S. Independence Day, I bring you Spartacus the Kite by Alec Carrick. I made it. I'm free. I can't believe it. It's so great. I can hear them talking below me. They think this is a tragedy and it's making them sad. They suspect the tree was lurking to ensnare me. They couldn't be more wrong. I saw my opportunity and I took it. The lady's concentration wavered for a second and I leapt on a surging updraft into the arms of these branches. Then she pulled too hard and my chains broke. Now I'm sitting pretty, way up in the sky, looking out over the bay, open air in almost all directions. They're still talking about what they can do to rescue me. The man says he might climb the tree. That's a laugh. He'll get halfway up, then drop like a stone. I don't really want to see that. I don't know these people, but they seem decent enough, and I have no reason to be cruel. The little one says they should send squirrels up to get me. That's actually pretty good, as jokes go. Nobody in my immediate family has ever been free before. I had a distant relative who once had his cord break, and he disappeared over a bank of hills. Nobody ever heard from him again. There were rumors that he later found success in life as a lookout for migrating whooping cranes, but that's only family folklore. More likely, he got fried when tied up to a lightning rod. That's the threat kite parents use on their children when they want them to behave. I'm also the first kite in my family to go to university, majoring in history. That's where I learned that there's more to life than just being kept on a string. Sure, it's nice to soar heavenward on a strong breeze, but then you get yanked from side to side, and you're brought back down to earth long before you've had enough. Now I'm positioned here, high in my lookout. My wings are spread wide, and my tail is bobbing in the breeze. It's true, I won't be able to go anywhere, but sometimes you've got to give up a little to gain a lot. Below me, I can see they're finally giving up and moving away. There's some talk about coming back tomorrow or a week from now or even in a month or two to see if they can get me back. They can forget it. I'm never coming down. I'm hoping that what I've done will set an example for others of my kind. Maybe my actions will start a popular movement in the kite community. Proudly, I go by the name of Spartacus. Now, if I can only find a mate. Thank you for listening to Spartacus the Kite by Alec Carrick. I hope you've enjoyed today's Readers on the Run story as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. And now for our special Canada Day episode, I'm thrilled to bring you our Dead to Rights interview with Canadian author and former Parks Warden, George Mercer. Award-winning author of the Died in the Green series, the first fiction series about Canada's iconic national parks, George worked for more than three decades as a park warden, including six national parks on both the east and west coasts, the north and the Rocky Mountains. 
George's passion for parks and protected areas forms the backdrop for much of his writing, including both creative nonfiction and fiction found at his website, as well as nonfiction found at writenature.com. Stay with us as we reach out to George. Good morning, George. Welcome to Dead to Rights. How are you today? Hey, good. Very good. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. Um, George... Thanks for for adjusting the uh, time. Oh, you're quite welcome. You're quite welcome. And in honor of the fact that you worked for so long, three decades as a park warden in Canada in the national parks, we're going to actually air this on Canada Day weekend. So just keep that in mind as we're talking because... um, I thought that would be a really good slot for you. Um, For our listeners, George Mercer is the award-winning author of the Died in the Green series, the first fiction series about Canada's iconic national parks. And as someone who grew up um, spending almost every summer in those parks, I really applaud you for bringing them to readers. Hey, thanks. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. And I guess my main thing is to try and use my fiction to try and attract readers to stories about our national parks that they might not otherwise read. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you tell us about a couple of the parks that you've worked in that really have stayed in your mind? Well, they all have, quite honestly. We've worked in six, but um, started in Terra Nova, Newfoundland, and then moved to Fundy, New Brunswick, and then Cape Breton, and then following to Wood Buffalo and Jasper, and now to the uh, Gulf Islands. But uh, uh, Wood Buffalo, I would have to say, is one that's been uh, um, was a really powerful place for uh, for working, and that's some really challenging issues there, and really neat to work in Canada's north. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jasper, also being sort of an iconic Rocky Mountain National Park, was you know was also yeah the sheer place. beauty, the sheer beauty. Um, you mentioned yeah. also Fundy. Um, that's where my my peeps are from. So, <laughs> so I'm very familiar with that park. Yeah. Yeah. So Fundy was also uh, sort of the first park I had permanent work in, and that. But and the stories, the series actually are all based on parks that I worked in. So uh, only writing about national parks that have actually you know got good knowledge about know the landscape and the marine areas and uh, try and. Uh, embed that as much as possible into the story so readers get yeah. a good sense of place. Yes, I noticed that when I was uh, actually doing a little research. And for our listeners, you can find George at georgemercer.com. Um, and when I was online taking a look at your work, I noticed that they really are all set in, in these places. Uh, tell us about a couple of your titles. For example, Died in, in the Green. Well, Died in the Green is actually, so it's the title uh, book in the series and also the name of the series itself. And uh, it basically comes from uh, an expression that an older chief park warden used out uh, in Atlantic Canada. And he was talking about the commitment that parks people have to working in national parks and people who work in protected areas in general, saying they aren't really died in the wool, they're died in the green, that they're, uh, you know, they're so... um, so committed to working on things uh, with respect to the environment and protected areas that they're literally died in the green. Mm-hmm. And your national park warden is Ben Matthews, and he's in the Cape Breton Highlands, which is um, just absolutely stunning country. 
Um, and he is facing a notorious poacher with a reputation for letting nothing get in his way. Can you tell us any more about that story? I know it's set along the Cabot Trail, which is just, again, gorgeous countryside for anyone who has not done the Cabot Trail. Um, I really do recommend it. Yeah, so uh, the two main characters, Park Wardens, are uh, Ben Matthews and Kay Jones. And uh, as soon as they get into Cape Breton, actually, they run into a fairly notorious poacher, John Donald Morris. And um, one of the one of the big challenges is that not only is the poaching of salmon and, and deer rampant in the park, but there's also the challenge of uh, dealing with sort of the overall acceptance within the local community of poaching as sort of part of their way of life. So Ben and Kate are sort of up against not only the, the poaching itself, but the attitudes about it. But as they make headway dealing with uh, some of the characters in this story, they actually um, help to turn the tide within the community. And uh, I, won't give, I won't give away the main thing, but uh, other events help turn the tide in the community to sort of sway uh, more of the community um, attitude. Towards the need for protection of the national park, and another title in this series is Wood Buffalo, um, and that would have been the one that you were telling me about in the outset of our our talk, um, where Ben Matthews is actually in now he goes from the Cape Breton Highlands to Wood Buffalo, and where exactly is Wood Buffalo? So, excuse me, Wood Buffalo is actually uh, Canada's largest national park, and it's actually the second largest in the world, but it's. Uh, so it, it straddles the border between northern Alberta and the Northwest Territory. So basically from uh, approximately from the community of uh, Fort Chippewyan in Alberta um, into across the border, uh, Fort Smith and the Northwest Territories and almost to the edges of Great Slave Lake. So it's a, a large national park mainly set aside to protect bison, but also it has the, uh, the world's only sort of migrating population of uh, endangered hooping cranes, and it has uh, the largest inland uh, freshwater delta in Canada, one of the largest in the world. So it's uh, it's a very ecologically uh, and culturally rich national park. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not one that most general tourists would ever make their way to. Um, uh, Great Slave Lake is really up there, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, you're getting into, uh, actually, so you're still into the southern part. It just gives you an idea of how big this country is. And you're still getting into sort of just the southern part of the Northwest Territories. And, of course, it extends beyond the subarctic into the, the high Arctic and, and uh, you know, the very northern part of the, the planet and that. But um, what Wood Buffalo is, as you say, like quite a remote park. And uh, even though there's a road right into Fort Smith and that not a lot of people make the foray from uh, say southern Canada and get into Wood Buffalo. I think it probably only receives a few thousand visitors each year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That would have been my guess too. Um, I think it would probably be worth it for anyone who is a real true naturalist who, who really wants that kind of experience. Um, but for anyone maybe getting on like myself, it might be a little bit too rugged. Well, it's, um, it is a part that's hard to, even once you get there, it is a part that's hard to appreciate from just driving around. It's, uh, uh, there are massive rivers there that, you know, if, you, if a person could get out on the rivers and get into places like the Delta um, that are 
fairly inaccessible, um, you know, you get a much better uh, overview of the park. But there definitely are areas that you can get to and get a good appreciation of some portions of the park. But overall, it's almost a park that you need to uh, get up in the air and fly around to even get a sense of just how massive it is. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And to be able to see, uh, you know, like herds of bison and large packs of wolves, that type of thing, you can you can find them on some of the forays you make by road, but uh, but it is tough to get an appreciation of the park just from the ground. Now all your covers are great, but this one in particular is really striking. Um, you've got the image of the buffalo that isn't immediately seen, like your eye doesn't immediately pick up that that's what it is, and. Um, it's really quite striking. Um, do you have a cover artist that, that does your covers? Yeah, so, <clears throat> excuse me, yeah, the, uh, that, it's interesting that you make that comment about the wood buffalo cover because, um, you know, I guess because of familiarity, we look at it and we see the buffalo in it right away, but a lot of people have commented that uh, the bison doesn't stand out and they're really surprised and intrigued when they do see it. Um, all of my covers are actually done by a fellow by the name of Dan Stiles in Portland, Oregon. So it's actually the only thing about my series that isn't Canadian, but uh, Dan actually has done covers for uh, some well-known Canadian, other uh, well-known Canadian writers. But that's Dan Stiles, and he really is quite a striking artist. Um, go to georgemercer.com, listeners, and have a look at these covers because they're really quite something to see. I mean, aside from the fact that the stories are, are um, really intriguing. Um, tell me a little bit about Jasper Wild. I think most of our listeners will know Jasper as a park, whereas they may not be familiar with the others you've written about. Yeah, so, so Jasper Wild is... Um, uh, obviously set in Jasper National Park and uh, Kate and Ben moved to Jasper after uh, being in Wood Buffalo and in Jasper the story there that they're the, the challenge they face there is that they're up against a proposed development in the National Park um, a German mining magnate who is sort of pushing a coal mine on the boundaries of the park is actually behind using that as a bit of a ruse uh, he's behind a proposal to build a backcountry lodge in one of the premier uh, backcountry uh, valleys in the in the park, and uh, so they're basically their challenge is to basically try and stop that. Um, but it sort of speaks to overall speaks to the de development pressures that many of our national parks, particularly in southern Canada, face. Which um, you know, when I which I would I would say is it's actually almost a constant pressure. And even though there are rules and regulations around development, there's always people that want to try to push the edges of that. Of course, of course. That's that's what they do, you know. Um, and, and I think we're all familiar with, on the one hand, the argument is we want to use our resources for our own best benefit. But then on the other hand, our greatest resource of all is these places. And uh, they're, they're just stunningly beautiful. If any of our listeners out there have never been to Canada, I, I recommend that you do what, uh, what I did as a young person. You get on a train and just go from one end to the other with as many stops as you can make. Um, I, I met many travelers from, for example, Australia when I was doing that. And uh, seeing our country through other people's eyes is really... It's very revealing because the things that they focus on are these wilderness sites and the great greenery of this country. 
Yeah, and that's the uh, the other thing about the stories too is trying to uh, really give the readers a sense of place. So that is one of the common comments I get back from people is that they, you know, they say they really felt like they were in uh, Wood Buffalo National Park. They really felt like they were on the Cabot Trail in Cape Breton Highlands or in Jasper National Park. So that's uh, that's something I'm I really um, aspire for in my writing to try and give readers a sense of the places that I'm writing about and hopefully give them, uh, you know, some desire to uh, visit these places or at least uh, learn more about them. Yes, I would say that would be one of the biggest drivers of all is bring people to these places because they're gorgeous places. They are world-class places, really. Um, Before we talk about fat cats, I'll just tell you a little quick story about the Cabot Trail. Um, We lived in uh, Sydney, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia for a little while, and our family, as as I'd said earlier, were in New Brunswick on the Bay of Fundy, and uh, we were doing our annual summer jaunt out traveling. We were probably heading down to Vermont and Maine and those places, because that would have been a common route for us. And we decided we we were coming down, well, there's no other way to come down except through the Cabot Trail. This would have been probably 73, and of course the car broke down. We were able to coast down the mountainside to a gas station and pull in, and uh, they called in their local mechanic, who of course didn't have parts to fix the car. We ended up pitching the tent, and we were there for two weeks, camped on the side of a rock quarry. (laughs) So our entire holiday was spent camping on the side of the uh, mountain on the Cabot Trail. <laughs> While they were waiting for a part for the car. Um, it was it was not the worst holiday we'd ever had either. It was actually kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great story. Mm-hmm. Now tell me a little bit about Fat Cats because that's that's a different kind of title again. And we're talking oh, yeah. about cougars in this one. Yeah, so the story is a little different than the others, uh, not dealing with uh, poachers and uh, people trying to kill wildlife uh, necessarily in a national park. But uh, So in this story, my main character switches up a little bit, John Halfcutt, who shows up in the at the tail end of the, well, he shows up in the Jasper story, and then at the tail end of that story, um, moves to the Gulf Islands on Canada's west coast uh, to help establish a new national park here in the southern Gulf Islands. But um, he's an older warden, a little bit uh, tired of all the bureaucracy. He becomes a little bit of a rogue uh, warden. Um, And because deer are such a huge issue on the islands and the overpopulation of deer is such a problem because of the lack of predation, uh, any predators like wolves or bears or cougars that show up usually get shot. So John's uh, whole raison d'etre, I guess, is to uh, use cougars to put them out on the islands to help help uh, reduce the population of deer mm-hmm. but he but he runs into a, no, a notorious uh, cougar tracker who is uh, hired by some of the islanders to actually uh, dispatch the cougar so it's a bit of a challenge between john and this cougar cougar tracker to uh, see who wins out at the end of the day mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and these predatory animals uh, cougars and wolves they get such a bad rap internationally um and they are really, they're generally, they've been a hated species, but without them, our ecosystems are just whacked. Um, and I know that island living is particularly challenging. 
with overrun of deer and in some cases moose. I know in Newfoundland, overrun of moose is a real problem. Um, so, so these kinds of predatory animals are so essential, really, aren't they? Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, I mean, that's sort of the underlying ecological theme to the story is that, uh, you know, predation and predators is a huge part of any ecosystem. And, and uh, in the end, they help, uh, you know, maintain native biodiversity um, here on the islands, for example. And um, even though, you know, you're right that uh, predators have had a bad rap for centuries, essentially, I think there is globally a change in perspective on the importance of the role of, of large predators and, uh, you know, species such as in North America, species, species such as uh, uh, the various bears, black bears, grizzly bears, and polar bears, cougars, and wolves, um, you know, increasingly, uh, you know, their importance is, is being recognized. Then you have things like the reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone National Park. Yes, I saw that video. That was just a stunning video, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and you know, the uh, all of the spin-off effects ecologically of uh, reintroducing a predator, you know, it, it basically goes to, uh, you know, impacting everything from, um, you know, water and vegetation to songbirds and smaller mammals right up to larger mammals, like in the case of Yellowstone elk and bison. So basically they're, you know, it's considered cascading ecological effects and, uh yeah, it really is uh, quite amazing what happens when predators are reintroduced into systems that haven't had them for a long time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because we, being at the top of the food chain, haven't had a respect for these predators and perhaps have had a fear, an underlying fear of them, which in olden days was probably quite natural. I mean, they, they could do a lot of damage to homesteaders who weren't properly able to take care of themselves against them, but uh, we're not living that life anymore, so I think the fear angle really is kind of irrelevant these days, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, you know, and that's a really good point, and I think the other thing is, uh, another point I try to make in the story is, uh, you know, the, the risk or the perceived risk, you know, that these, you know, predators pose to people, and, uh, you know, a, a, a friend of mine, a, a student who worked with me several years ago, made the comment she was doing her master's on cougars, but uh, she made the comment that, you know, we don't think anything of driving down the highway at 100 kilometers an hour or more, separated from oncoming traffic by nothing more than a yellow line of paint. But uh, yet when a predator shows up on the landscape, we, we cry foul and we worry about it. But so it, a lot of it has to do with... Uh, you know, perceived risk and how much risk we're willing to take and how much that risk is actually overblown when mm-hmm. we uh, do mm-hmm. have predators on the landscape. That's right. And then, of course, there's the agricultural community that has a voice, too, and um, they're always concerned about predators. But um, but it's all in the balance. And without these, without these guys on the landscape, we really don't have the balance. Yeah, I mean, they're... Um yeah, they're, they're really an essential component of any ecosystem and, you know, also in the context of uh, the West Coast story here, you know, you can say the same thing about species such as orcas or killer whales, uh, you know, as uh, a large predatory mammal in uh, in our waters, you know, they mm-hmm. play a really critical role and, and also, you know, the uh, southern resident whales here on the coast are uh, endangered and, so yeah, that's the other part of the story I'm trying to give a perspective on is that it's not only uh, 
uh, terrestrial systems, but also our marine ecosystems as well, are really critical to protect. And that's why, you know, there's a big push here on the coast to establish a national marine conservation area and hopefully uh, give some of those species, such as orcas, you know, more protection. Yeah, yeah. Now, the work that you're, you're on right now is outside of the Diet and the Green series, and it's called Harking. And uh, you've got a tentative release date for 2019. Can you tell us about Harking? So, yeah, uh, thanks for bringing that up. Um, I am trying to, uh, I've got other books planned in the series. Um, hopefully we'll have six or seven books in the series, but Harking sits outside of it. There are some links, but it's about a young girl, Harking Sewell, who uh, lives in one of the mountain national parks. Um, and, and basically her, her interest, she's uh, almost finished high school. She's an avid outdoor person. Um, really interested in mountain biking and hiking and in natural history. But she is challenged to deal some, with some of her pals from school who are also hardcore mountain bikers. And they're, uh, they end up biking in a closed area within the national park and uh, end up getting charged by a grizzly bear. And um, through no fault of the bear, the bear reacts to their sudden appearance on the trail. But, um, and no one is seriously hurt, but... Uh, because of that incident, uh, a lot of the, the parents and some of the members of the public are after the, uh, the parks to go after the bears and, uh, and destroy this female bear and her cubs. Mm-hmm. And Harking takes it upon herself to basically get the true story out and to actually stand up for the bears and try and protect them. This so, sounds like a story that really, and all, actually all these stories sound like they are equally of interest to adults and young adults, and perhaps even children with a good reading level. Is that is that true? Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I think, you know, like I, I basically tell most people who ask me uh, at markets and that, that uh, the Dyed in the Green series, I would say, you know, like for uh, high school kids and older, and uh, Harking is a little bit of an uh, attempt to maybe uh, get into a little bit of a younger reader, reader mm-hmm. group. But, uh, but definitely, you know, in fact, I do get, and I really love this, I do get a lot of younger people telling me that, you know, they've read books in the Dyed in the Green series and they love them. And uh, so I would have to say that I don't have sort of one demographic that's reading my uh, stories. And, you know, I, I like to think that uh, people of all, mostly all ages and, uh, you know, whether male or female are, are, are getting, uh, enjoying the stories. And yeah. working, though, is a little bit of an attempt to try and, get me excuse me maybe get a little bit of a younger group but, mm-hmm. and also appeal to uh, appeal to um, you know a younger readership with a story that i i think will hopefully uh, entertain them but also you know maybe get away from all the stories of wizards and monsters and superheroes and yes get, yes something quite well this is what i was going to say george is that the series and harking they are all quite unique and um which is something that is really to be valued. But having said that, even within this uniqueness, I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb and say I loved Free Willy and when my oldest was young, he loved Free Willy. And I'm reading about Harking and I'm getting that same feeling. You know, I know it's not the same kind of story, but I'm getting that kind of feeling. Yes, you know. Yeah, well, and that's, you know, that's uh, great to hear because, I, I mean, that is something that I, would, I do want to try and get uh, readers to uh, uh, become, 
you know, emotionally invested in a story like Harking and, you know, in my series, but especially in uh, a story like Harking to get emotionally invested and sort of understand, uh, you know, the, the impact that we people play on the landscape and how we can uh, affect species such as grizzly bears and, and some of the simple things that we can actually do to improve the situation for bears and other species on the landscape while still enjoying them. And, uh, but also, yeah, I guess, you know, a key message would be uh, about what types of changes to our behavior do we need to make that give these species the, the space that they need to uh, move around on the landscape and to survive and meet their needs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as we are airing on Canada Day weekend, um, people from all over, I hope, are listening, not just within Canada. But if you're within Canada, please go to georgemercer.com and look these books up because my sense is that these are treasures for us. And, um, you know, please share these works widely with your friends outside of Canada to give them a better sense of what our country is about. Um, you can follow George Mercer on Twitter, too. What's your Twitter? What's your Twitter handle? It's at eGeorgeMercer, basically. Um, yeah, that's my main one. So you can follow me on Twitter at eGeorgeMercer. Mm-hmm. And uh, are you also on Facebook? Uh I'm on Facebook. I don't, uh, yeah, I think if, if people just uh, search for my name, George Mercer, I think... Uh, They're uh, going to find you, yeah. They're going to find me, yeah. Yeah, well, thank you so much, George. I really appreciated having you on and talking about your works. They really look like fine works to my eye, and um, I'm going to be investigating them further, and I'm really encouraging readers out there to please investigate these works. I want to send a heartfelt thanks to George Mercer, author and former Parks Warden, for joining us today on Dead to Rights, the podcast. A very happy Canada Day to all our Canuckian listeners, and a happy 4th of July to our American friends. You can find Dead to Rights at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page. Our Twitter handle is at deadtorightspod. We'd love to hear from you at carrickpublishing.com or at our Carrick Publishing Facebook page, and we certainly welcome any suggestions regarding authors to be interviewed. You can find me, Donna Carrick, at Donna underscore Carrick, or at my website, DonnaCarrick.com. You can find my partner in crime, Alec Carrick, at Twitter, at Alex underscore Carrick, or at his website, alexcarrick.com. Join us next week when we speak with self-help author Irene Weichler, the author of Role Reversal. All Dead to Rights interviews, stories, and comments are property of Carrick Publishing. All production is handled by Donna Carrick. Our Dead to Rights theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by Ted Carrick, who also brought us the original story scoring music. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.
His vital signs go on hold And I don't know what you've been told But the years have turned my eyes gold And I told you what you told me We'd never be in the same boat for free Yet it rides Let it rock